Okay. We here at NPR have an app we really like. We want you to try it, too. It is called NPR One. You can use it to listen to NPR news, shows, and podcasts. And as you do, it listens to you, and it figures out what you like the best, and it gives you more of that. We think you will like it. Find NPR One on your app store now. Hey, y'all. It's the NPR Politics Podcast, here with our weekly roundup of political news. After some big primary votes on Tuesday, both parties held debates this week. We'll talk about what's left to learn from these debates anyway. We'll do some listener mail. And of course, we will end the show with Can't Let It Go, where we all share one thing we just cannot stop thinking about this week. I'm Sam Sanders, campaign reporter. I'm Susan Davis. I cover Congress. I'm Ron Elving, editor correspondent. And hello from Cleveland uh, in Ohio. I'm Tamara Keith. I cover the White House. And I'm here this week working on some stories about the Democratic race. I love that you clarified Ohio. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Are there others? There are others. All right. I think this is our third Friday in a row where we had a Republican debate the night before our Friday roundup. Uh, This one, though, sounded a little bit different. A lot bit different. Way different. Yeah. In Mm -hmm. fact, I wondered who those guys were. We're all in this together. We're going to come up with solutions. We're going to find the answers to things. And so far, I cannot believe how civil it's been up here. Governor Kasich, let's get back to Social Security. So that clip is courtesy of CNN. Um, But these guys debated Social Security and retirement age and visa programs and foreign policy and climate change. This was a real debate for the GOP after Handgate in the last debate. <laughs> <laughs> everyone everyone was nodding away like crazy. I mean, aff- affirmatively up and down to say, yes, Donald, I can't believe how civil it's been up here. Yeah. Well, Mar- Why? Well, Marco Rubio in the last debate and in prior to the last Tuesday's contest, switched tactics. He kind of went on Trump's level. He went more towards the personal attacks. He tried to beat Trump at his own game. It failed spectacularly, uh, and he had acknowledged as much and said he made a mistake. He said he didn't. He was going to change. He wasn't going to do that again. He embarrassed his kids. It was the wrong move. And we saw Marco 3.0, which was really Marco 1.0, which yeah. was the policy-focused, aspirational Republican candidate talking big themes, big ideas. For is you, it, the question is, is it too little yeah. too late? And we have to note that Florida has already voted. I mean, Election Day is Tuesday, but like hundreds of thousands of people have already voted early voting and absentee. So while Marco Rubio was Marco 2.0 that wasn't working, people were actually voting. Yeah. And so then these final polls out of Florida, are they totally bunk? Are they not worth anything? I don't know. The polls have been so erratic in this race, so you'll, you don't want to lean too heavily on them. But it is notable that Rubio has not been ahead in a poll in Florida in months. Wow. I mean, this is not the long term trajectory of those polls have shown him in the back of the pack. Trump has been leading in every single poll coming out of Florida in months. So Marco Rubio heads into Florida very much the underdog. We all have a reason to be nervous about polls on the Democratic side after Michigan. Mm -hmm. But we haven't really seen that kind of misleading polling on the Republican side. The polls keep telling us that Donald Trump is selling and that the other candidates are not so much, except perhaps for Ted Cruz if conservatives do consolidate behind him. So if the polls are telling us what they're telling us about Florida, it would seem to be lights out for Marco Rubio. You know, thinking about this debate, my big question for the group today is like, how much left is there to learn from these debates? How much are they worthwhile? I'm kind of feeling a little bit of the law of of diminishing returns with these things. Like, did this do anything? Did this change anything? Even though the tone was different, 
Did anyone watch that debate last night and say, oh, my mind has changed? I think it did change perhaps one mind. Reince Priebus, the Republican Party chairman, who was in despair after those last couple of Republican debates, especially the second one, he may now feel that he does have the chance to have a first ballot nominee in a party that coalesces behind that nominee, whatever that nominee's flaws may be. I I do think one thing I learned is that Donald Trump thinks that the U.S. should send 20 to 30,000 ground troops into defeat ISIS. We really have no choice. We have to knock out ISIS. We have to knock the hell out of them. We have to get rid of it. And then we have to come back here and rebuild our country, which is falling apart. How many? We have no choice. I would listen to the generals, but I would I'm hearing numbers of 20 to 30,000. We have to knock them out. That is a bigger number than even Lindsey Graham, the senator who was running for president, who was the one who had the biggest number of ground troops. It's a bigger number than he was talking about. And also with Trump, he really spent time talking about this, you know, 45 percent tax or tariff on goods from China. The 45 percent tax is a threat. It was not a tax. It was a threat. It will be a tax if they don't behave. Uh, Take China as an example. I have many friends, great manufacturers. They want to go into China. They can't. China won't let them. We talk about free trade. It's not free trade. It's stupid trade. But this is not the kind of thing that that Trump could even do alone to be president, right? It would require congressional approval, Susan. It should. I mean, trade law would require congressional approval. I mean, the president does have certain executive privileges when it comes to trade. But it just seemed like he doubled down on this thing that probably wouldn't happen anyway. There is zero chance that that gets through Congress. There is, as long as Paul Ryan is the Speaker of the House, there is zero chance that that would ever happen. But but this tariff is just like the wall on the Mexican border. Yeah. There is is zero chance that there is going to be a wall as described by Donald Trump, paid for by by Mexico. Mexico. Exactly. There is zero chance of that. But it's not even meant to be taken as a literal policy. It's meant to be taken as a kind of gesture of frustration and anger, yes. and this is how mad we yes. are. And as that, it has sold yeah. magnificently. Yeah. What is interesting to me about this like year in this debate, particularly on the Republican side, is we often spend so much time like fact-checking and fact-checking the yeah. debate. And it largely seems like a pointless exercise in these debates because <laughs> one of the things that is so interesting about Trump's supporters is they are with him. I mean, there is nothing he can say that will challenge that level of support. So whether the wall is going to get built or not get built. And when you say to a Trump supporter, like, you know, that probably can't happen. They just say, I, you know, I'm with him. So whether he's right or wrong. It is what it is. It is what it is. And and they like it's about style. It's about substance. It's about or about tone. Yeah. More than it is. Is this fact check correct? We should also talk about. Um, a question that Trump got last night. He was asked by Jake Tapper, who was moderating, whether Trump should feel responsible for now multiple violent incidents at his rallies recently. The other day, there was a video of a black protester getting sucker punched by an older white man as he was being let out of an arena. There was an earlier video of a young black woman being pushed and shoved by older white men as she was leaving the venue. Um, here's some of the exchange between Trump and Tapper about this. There is some anger. There's also great love for the country. It's a beautiful thing in many respects, but I certainly do not condone that at all, Jake. Some of your critics point to quotes that you've made at these debate, uh, at these rallies, including um, February 23rd, I'd like to punch him in the face, referring to a protester. February 27th, in the good old days, they'd have ripped him out of that seat so fast. February 1st, knock the crap out of him, would you? Seriously, okay, just knock the hell. I promise you, I will pay for the legal fees. I promise, I promise. 
We have some protesters who are bad dudes. They have done bad things. They are swinging, they are really dangerous, and they get in there and they start hitting people. And, and we had a couple big, strong, powerful guys. Wow. Doing he managed to spin people. that and say, oh, it's not the violent supporters of me, it's the violent protesters who, who, who uh, it was weird. And this sucker punch guy has now been charged with assault. Also, Donald Trump managed to turn this before he was done to praise for the local police who he yeah. said had been taking care of uh, the general so, level of it's conflict. It's usually the municipal government, the police, because I don't have guards all over these stadiums. I mean, we fill up stadiums. Uh, it's usually the police. And, and by the way, speaking of the police, we should pay our respects to the police because they are taking tremendous abuse of this country and they do a phenomenal job. And so then, of pay. course, went into his standard we riff about the police and how they don't get enough support and they don't get enough respect. And that's part of what's wrong with our society. And boom, we're right back to where Sue was a moment ago saying these people are with him, with him. So before we talk about the Democrats, we should mention Donald Trump's latest big endorsement. One neurosurgeon, Ben Carson, endorsed Trump this morning. And at the press conference, Ben Carson said a little interesting tidbit. He suggested that there are, quote, two Donald Trumps. There are two different Donald Trumps. There's the one you see on the stage, and there's the one who's very uh, cerebral, sits there and considers things very carefully. You can have a very good conversation with him. Um, and... That's the Donald Trump that you're going to start seeing more and more of right now. Um, then a little bit later, a reporter asked Trump if he agrees with that statement. I probably do agree. I think there are two Donald Trumps. There's the public version, and people see that, and uh, I don't know what they see exactly, but it seems to have worked over my lifetime. But uh, it's probably different, I think, than the personal Donald Trump, I think Ben would say that. Ben said it very well today. So perhaps there are two Donald Trumps. And then a few minutes uh, later, he was pressed on this again. Why are there two Donald Trumps? Did you at some point make a conscious decision to behave differently in public? For I don't think there are two Donald Trumps. I think there's one Donald Trump. But certainly you have, uh, you know, look, all of this. And you have somebody else that sits and reads and thinks. And I'm a thinker. And I have been a thinker. And you guys, and reads and think thinks. Trump has his own Sasha Fierce. <laughs> That's what this is. He has his own Beyonce esque alter ego. I'm thinking about Bob Dole. Bob Dole knew how to talk about Bob Dole. Bob Dole would always talk about Bob Dole in third person as though he weren't Bob Dole. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, oh my okay, so. Donald Trump has been saying in interviews, yeah, I'm wild and crazy now. This is all very fun. But if I'm president, I can be a serious president. So there's some element of that, which I think is also the Trump we saw at the debate last night. Yeah. I think yes. I mean, Trump is getting into a general election mindset. He's pivoting. He does not believe that this is a real fight for the nomination at this point. And he is trying to present himself more as the Republican nominee alternative. And he is changing his tone. I mean, and he's I doing think, exactly what he said he would do. And the pivot's working. I mean, like, the, he turned that switch real quick, and he was very good at it. And we'll see if the switch flips back. I mean, if people showed up at one of his rallies and serious Donald Trump was there, I don't know how happy they'd be. <laughs> that's, an, that's an excellent observation and a real question and something to watch for. But that debate last night, to me, had a little bit of an air of the finale for the primary season that maybe we'll have more debates there's one scheduled for march 21st in salt lake city utah maybe that will happen maybe donald trump will be there but he seemed to be indicating after the after the debate and on the morning after that he might have accomplished everything that he needed to we're done here let's move on 
We should also mention there was a Democratic debate this week on Wednesday uh, in Spanish and English with Univision and CNN. Was there some new stuff to learn from this or not? What what stood out for people? This was a debate for the Hispanic vote in Florida. Uh, Bernie Sanders has put out a multi-minute long ad in Spanish. Uh, Hillary Clinton has been working this vein for years. One of the moderators from Univision was actually saying, is what you're doing right now hispandering? Your new immigration plan is that you would expand President Obama's executive actions and that you would push for legislation that would include a path to citizenship for undocumented immigrants. So are you flip-flopping on this issue or are you pandering to Latinos, what some would call hispandering? Well, <laughs> in 2003, I sponsored the... Um, Dreamer Act. I sponsored and it. And really, I mean, at some points in, in this process, you have to say that this is just basically a naked bid for a particular set of voters. Not that they didn't talk about other issues, but you have both of them pledging that they will never deport children. So they I had both pledged that they would never deport people who were family members. I, I will not deport children. I would not deport children. I do not want to deport family members either, Jorge. So to answer your question, no, I will not deport children are from the United States of America. And can you promise not to deport immigrants who don't have a criminal record? I can make that promise. Okay. I mean, these are enormously complicated questions involving thousands and tens of thousands of cases, all of which are different, and here they are making blanket pronouncements. Here's my question to the group. When I heard them say that, I'll never deport kids, I'll never break up families, I said, there's no way you can defend that promise. Well, it, you, you I mean, you can't predict the climate of Congress or of whatever. Like, how could they say that? This is a little bit like promising to close Guantanamo. Exactly. It sounds great. It's what the people want to hear. It might be the right thing to do or not, but you can't simply blanket promise because you don't have that much power. As Sue was saying a moment ago, the president does not have all power in our system. I also thought Bernie Sanders just seemed really um, emboldened, aggressive, mm -hmm. was like more directly challenging Clinton. I think in prior debates, they, they agree to agree on a lot of things. But coming out of Michigan, he just seemed confident, aggressive, and really ready to like attack her positions and, and, and again, keep pushing her to the left or being seeking conflict with her now. I think he's feeling the burn. Yeah. <laughs> I think this was genuinely his, his best debate performance of the whole. He gets better basically every time. And this one, he hit her and those punches landed. What about that archival footage of him kind of maybe endorsing socialist Cuba Fidel Castro? That felt weird. In 1985, you praised the Sandinista government and you said that Daniel Ortega was an impressive guy. Uh, this is what you said about Fidel Castro. Let's listen. You may recall way back in, what was it, 1961, they invaded Cuba. And everybody was totally convinced that Castro was the worst guy in the world, that all the Cuban people were going to rise up in rebellion against Fidel Castro. They had forgotten that he educated their kids, gave them health care, totally transformed the society. In South Florida, there are still open wounds among some exiles regarding socialism and communism. Yeah, I'll just say so that struck me as problematic, uh, not necessarily primary problematic, but general election problematic. Oh, imagine the ads. Imagine the ads. But for now, probably there are not that many people who vote Democratic in the state of Florida who 
have that much animus about the Castro brothers and what happened in Cuba in the 1950s. It's ancient history for the mainstream of the Democratic, I emphasize the Democratic voter, in the primaries in Florida. Yeah. You know, there, there was also this moment where Hillary Clinton was asked why so many voters seemed to distrust her after her so many years in public life, and she had a very interesting response. I am not a natural politician, in case you haven't noticed, like my husband or President Obama. Um, so I have a view that I just have to do the best I can, get the results I can, make a difference in people's lives, and hope that people see that I'm fighting for them and that I can uh, improve conditions economically. I thought that was a remarkable moment. I did. I just think that Clinton is so practiced and so polished, and she always seems like someone who has, like, walls up that to acknowledge weakness. And it just was a very human moment from Hillary. But do you think she practiced that at least once? Maybe. I've been thinking about it at least <laughs> and it's for a little true. time. I mean, she just kind of acknowledged her biggest weakness on a debate stage. And I, I when I was listening to it, it was one of the like, you're kind of doing other things when the mm-hmm. debates are on. And it did made me stop and listen to her. I was like, wow, I can't believe she just said that. Sam, I think she's been thinking about that her entire adult life. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Uh, let's take a quick break. We'll be back with a look at next week's primaries and some listener mail. Support for NPR and the following message come from Personal Capital, the smart way to track and manage your net worth. See all your financial accounts in one place and get free online investing software and money management tools. You can even speak with a dedicated personal investment advisor. Join us today at personalcapital.com politics. We're back. Let's talk about next Tuesday, another huge round of primaries. Florida, Ohio, Illinois, Missouri, North Carolina. Tam, you are in Ohio, uh, one of the biggest contests for both parties. What's happening there? I think that what's happening here is possibly a real race. The polls show Clinton up by double digits, but the polls in Michigan showed her up by double digits. And I think there is a very real question here on the ground about whether Bernie Sanders will be able to win or at least come very close in Ohio. And and the reason to think that, the argument in favor of that, is that in terms of demographics, the demographics are actually more favorable to Bernie Sanders here in Ohio than they were in Michigan. Uh, the African-American population, where Hillary Clinton does incredibly well, is a little bit smaller, and the white population is a little bit larger. And Bernie Sanders did very well with especially white males in Michigan. Have either of the candidates changed their strategy from what you've seen post-Michigan? Um, not really. I mean, I think at this point, there's such a short window of time to campaign that they are just race, 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 racing. The one thing I will say that I've seen from both of them, which I find really interesting, is Bernie Sanders last night had a five-minute ad that aired on Univision stations nationwide, um, featuring a a young migrant farm worker woman talking about having difficulty feeding her children because the wages she was making picking tomatoes uh, just weren't enough to help her feed her kids. It's a really emotional ad. It's beautifully shot. Um, And then it cuts to video of Bernie Sanders holding a hearing about the plight of the tomato workers. Workers were being paid starvation wages and subjected to abusive labor practices. Bernie Sanders 
This was back in 2008-2010, some time frame around there. But what's interesting to me is this is a five-minute ad airing nationwide on Univision. And then now Hillary Clinton is also running what what I would consider an epic ad, a three-minute ad featuring the mothers of the movement. These are the parents of uh, young men and, and women killed in police-related violence. My name is Geneva Reed Beal. Gwen Carr. Lucy McBath. Maria Hamilton. Uh, my name is Sabrina Fulton, and my son was Trayvon Martin. The ad is three minutes long, and it will be airing in Cleveland, St. Louis, and Chicago. This is what we need our officials to recognize. The stakes are too high. The costs are too dear. But I think that for Sanders and Clinton, these ads are doing different things. For Sanders, if he's going to have a chance in Florida, he needs to do better with Latino voters than he's done in past elections, in past primaries. And for Hillary Clinton, this is about strengthening her base. African-American women, older African-American women, they are her voters. Hmm. Uh, so next Tuesday, another big selection of delegates up for grabs. We've called previous Tuesdays with big votes Super Tuesday. Well, one previous Tuesday. Why don't we have a name for this? What do we call it? How about the Ides of March? <laughs> super er Tuesday? Super Duper Tuesday? We could call it March 15th. <laughs> What's different about this one? This one has five big states. We have four states among the 10 most populous in the country. That's Florida, of course, Illinois, which is the fifth most populous, then Ohio. Then you have North Carolina, which most people do not know is in the top 10 for populous states. And then finally, uh, we have Missouri, which is 18th, but a big state, a state that oftentimes has been something of a bellwether for the country as a whole. And what's interesting about these contests on Tuesday, with the exception of Illinois, the four of them are battleground states in November. So this is make or break for Marco Rubio and John Kasich. If Marco Rubio does not win Florida, it's almost certain to exit the race. There's really no path forward. And John Kasich, if he doesn't win his home state of Ohio, it's hard to see where he goes from there. Though we should also point out that primaries are not predictive of general election results because Hillary Clinton actually won Ohio and I believe Florida in 2008. Uh, President Obama ultimately did just fine in those states. And turnout in primaries is not particularly predictive either, right? It's not because it largely depends on which party has a more compelling race. For example, when an incumbent president is running and there's no one running against that incumbent president, then turnout is flat. I mean, nobody turns out just to vote for the one guy. Uh, but there is a primary and people do sort of show up and some people are there to vote for other offices. In this particular instance, where you just have two Democratic candidates, and in some of these states, my suspicion is that people have felt there really wasn't that much competition. They weren't that inspired by either candidate. People who are perhaps Hillary Clinton supporters in a sort of weak way or a sort of, oh, well, I guess she's it kind of way, maybe planning in their own minds to vote for her in November. They don't feel any particular compulsion to vote for her in the spring. And maybe they are even coming out and voting for Bernie Sanders because he is the story right now. He's the buzz. He's the burn. And there's something to be said for voting for Bernie Sanders now to move Hillary Clinton closer to Bernie Sanders in the long run. This yeah. is also the day that Trump can end this race. If Trump sweeps on Tuesday, it's over. He is the nominee, period. And Marco Rubio's spokesman today on CNN actually said that the best bet in Ohio would be for people to vote for John Kasich. Um, Marco so Rubio's spokesman yeah. said that? Yes. That's right. Why uh -huh. would he do that? It is the Mitt Romney calculation that if you can deprive Donald Trump of 12 
37? 1237. If you can deprive them of the magic number, then somehow you can change the outcome in Cleveland. But increasingly, that seems like a very unlikely strategy, because even if Donald Trump is shy of the magic number, he is almost certainly going to be the one closest to it. Yeah. And I have yet to meet someone outside of the Rubio campaigns and Mitt Romney world who thinks that that's really a viable strategy at the end of the day. And even if there is like a search on the convention floor for someone besides Trump, there's a, there's a very small chance that it's even Rubio because he's so far down, right? Yeah. The idea that Marco Rubio can walk into the convention with third or fourth in delegates and walk out the nomination, is that's just a fantasy. Let's remember there's a wonderful consolation prize in every presidential primary season, and that is being vice president. That but is, is a good year, office. Ron. This, this is, is a good office. And Marco but, Rubio and John Kasich both make absolutely magnificent candidates for vice president. They bring two swing states that the Republicans would love to have. I'm shaking my head no because I'm just like who the way that they bashed Trump would they want to run with him no. and if Trump l- loses in a landslide have they doomed themselves I'm going to give you six letters JFK LBJ that's okay. that's the okay. ultimate example of how two people who had absolutely I would carpet that, bombed each other yeah. for months nonetheless were a ticket and won because they were a ticket because that's how they got Texas otherwise JFK would never have been president and Donald Trump was asked this week on Morning Joe if he would if Marco Rubio was someone he could consider as a vice president and he did not rule it out there you have it okay all right let's do some mail Maurice wrote to ask quote why are the most recent GOP debates occurring on Thursday nights do Wright Previous and whoever else scheduled the debates have something against ABC's Shondaland shows? Referring to the ABC showrunner Shonda Rhimes. Do I watch the scripted Crazy of Grey's Anatomy scandal and How to Get Away with Murder or the reality TV style drama of the GOP debate? Uh, Tam, you have an answer for this? <laughs> well, I don't actually know why they schedule it on Thursdays, though Thursdays do tend to be days with good ratings. Um, but I do know that Shondaland is all in for Hillary Clinton because they released an ad last night, no coincidence that it started running on Thursday night, uh, starring Shonda Rhimes and the female leads in, in some of her shows. Every day I wake up and play a brilliant, complex, overqualified, get-it-done woman who obsessively fights for justice. Wow. Who cares? Who gives a voice to the voiceless. Who gets knocked down and always gets back up. Not subtle. <laughs> but is anything Shonda does subtle? Subtle is not She does not do subtle. Oh, but bonus, guys. This is directed by Tony Goldwyn, who plays the president on Scandal. The most corrupt president ever. <laughs> also, I want to point out, this season's plotline in Scandal is all about a former first lady running for president. Is the media plot not revealed in all of this? Do <laughs> we not see what the media are up to? <laughs> Hashtag basically. Yes. Yeah. Also, dear listener, DVR it. You can That's have your bo- you can have both. That's you can true. have your Shonda and your debate yeah. too. And also, dear listener, you should not be watching How to Get Away with Murder because that show is bunk. I cannot follow <laughs> that show. It makes no sense to me. It's crazy. You're better than that. <laughs> you just don't speak Wisconsin. <laughs> all right. Amy in Maine wrote to ask, quote, I don't understand the undying loyalty among the Republican establishment for the nominee, no matter who it is. They don't seem to think Trump will win anyway. So why not save the governors and Senate down ticket by having a third party candidate like Romney, for instance? I think it's I think it's really I think it's really beneath Mitt Romney to send in a letter under somebody else's name. I don't think he should have done that. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but but it, so let's just be clear it's it's really hard to run as a third party 
candidate. So can, how hard is it to get on ballots, for one? I don't know that process. It's a state by state. Every state has different laws governing money. how you get on ballots. In money? Explain. It costs a fortune. Ross Perot managed to do it. He started a lot earlier, and he managed to get on all 50 state ballots. He didn't win any states. He finished second in Maine, 1992. But he won 19% of the vote and made a huge point and probably helped, had a hand in electing Bill Clinton. Uh, it can be done. I think Michael Bloomberg could have gotten it done. He would have gotten started right about now. And he would have gotten on all 50 state ballots. Why does it cost money to get on a, on the ballot? You have to gather signatures. You have to pay filing fees. You basically have to have staff in every single state. Um, it's it's not an easy or cheap process. The problem in the premise, too, is that this mythological Republican that can come into this race and, and change it and save it for the party, they don't exist. I mean, Mitt Romney's not the guy that's... Paul Ryan? See, I, doesn't I, have the money <laughs> and doesn't want the job. There you go. Yeah. Yeah. No, but you know what I mean? Like, later. He, and is not going to run as an independent because Paul Ryan is, says, he says, I am the Republican Party. They do not want to cede uh, yeah. what okay. the party is. Okay. So I'm not sure who that person is. And shy of someone with Michael Bloomberg style money, they just don't exist. Okay. Shana from Somerville, Massachusetts, wrote to ask, quote, why do some states award proportional delegates while others employ the winner takes all method? It seems like this arbitrary difference actually has major implications for who becomes a nominee, as we are seeing this season. Well, that's very much by intention. Uh, the Democrats are always proportional, although it is possible to really dominate in a state if you really dominate in the vote. But the Republicans have retained this idea of winner-take-all primaries. It used to be the way they pretty much did them all. But the idea of it was that once you started getting a front runner, you wanted that person to wrap it up as soon as possible and be the only Republican out there. This time around, it's kind of backfiring because the establishment is not happy about Donald Trump being the front runner, but he's the one who's going to probably start rolling this thing up by winning winner-take-all states. On the other hand, if he loses winner-take-all states, that increases the possibility he could be stopped on the first ballot. So it's a little bit into the world of unintended consequences at this point. All right. The last one is a good one. Austin emailed us to ask, quote, if you had unlimited access to one campaign, which one would it be? Imagine no one would lie to you. You'd be treated like any other high-level staffer, but you couldn't report anything until after the inauguration in 2017. Who would you guys pick? So I've been wrestling with this since we've gotten this question, and I was leaning Clinton because I think she's always had such a tight knit inner circle that you feel like you'd never really know what's going on inside the brain trust. But I am now going to go Trump following the endorsement with Ben Carson, where he talked about the two Donalds and no, there's only one mm. Donald or there's two Donalds. You know, Trump is still he's sort of a mystery. And I wonder behind closed doors in a very small circle of advisors that he has that are all sort of political newcomers to what that experience is like. And the fact that it is really the insurgent campaign of the cycle and the more spectacular political story, I think I'm gonna have to go Trump. So I have been covering Hillary Clinton a lot and have gotten basically no access to the candidate. And it's just a black box. Like I spend all this time at events and there's so much that I don't see. Um, so for that reason, I would pick Hillary Clinton. However, if as a bonus, I could get to spend a day with Bernie Sanders web guru, Kenneth Pennington, who is the guy who tweets what Bernie says, I, I would love that. That would be awesome. Ron? 
I think Trump, at the same time, since Sue has already taken Trump and has such a good reason for doing so, I'm going to say it would be interesting to see what it's like inside Ted Cruz's campaign. Let's face it, his strategy has been pretty successful thus far, and he is the last person in the Republican Party with a chance of being the nominee other than Donald Trump. Yeah. You know, I would have liked to have been inside of Ben Carson's campaign to watch that implosion and the fights of personality. That was high drama, and I was totally there for it. Uh, Besides that, though, I would want to be in Sanders' campaign because the longer I've been covering his campaign, um, in the early parts of it, there were lots of people and staffers who were staffing up Bernie Sanders in their downtime after they finished their full-time jobs for the day. This was a thing that I think at first a lot of folks involved with it didn't think it would make it this far. So to watch the moment at which Team Bernie said, whoa, we might could do this, like to see that from the inside would would be pretty awesome, I think. Uh, And maybe Jeff Weaver would uh, take you over to the comic book shop. Yes. Now, Jeff Weaver, senior advisor to the Sanders campaign. Your campaign manager. Campaign manager. His like day job is being owner of a comic book store. That's so perfect. So perfect. All right. We're going to take one more quick break. We'll be right back with Can't Let It Go. Support for this podcast and the following message come from HBO Now, the new way to stream all of HBO with no TV package required. Get all of the series, movies, docs, sports specials, and more. Download the HBO Now app on your favorite device to start your 30-day free trial instantly. Okay, we're back. Time for Can't Let It Go, when we all share one thing we just can't stop thinking about this week, politics or otherwise. Susan's going to go first. She's got some uh, a squad goal story for us. Now, before I do my Can't Let It Go, I have to disclose something about myself that none of you may know. Oh. My first job mm. in journalism... I was a People magazine reporter. Really? So there's that. a little bit of a part of me that is always a little a little celeb obsessed. Oh, I feel your pain. Um, and so my can't let it go this week is our obsession about the friendship between or frenemyship between <laughs> Ivanka Trump and Chelsea Clinton. Uh, yeah. Apparently, there's been a series of stories this week. Politico started off saying that apparently because of the intensity of this race and the comments that their parents have made, the friendship is now on ice. Oi. Mm, that's sad. Uh, and I think it's also kind of interesting because Sam and I were kind of talking a little bit about the podcast, but it's also how we like obsess about female friendships. and Much more would, than male friendships. Would this be the case if they were the sons of presidential contenders? Yeah, but as the case may so. be, Ivanka and Chelsea, they have had apparently a very friendly relationship over the years, although it's not to suggest that they've been best friends forever. Uh, and that because of the campaign, it's hurting their friendship. And I would say as someone who has a father who often also says crazy things, don't let it affect your friendship, ladies. (laughs) And I'm cheating a little bit because I'm going to have two because I also this week was a little bit, which is also a little bit Uh celeb-focused, was Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau came to Washington and lit the town on fire. With Obama. With Obama. Kissing babies. Had a state dinner at the White House. It was a very star-studded affair. Uh, I think a lot of way in the way that Obama 08 kind of captivated a lot of the world and including Canada for the first time American politics is captivated by a Canadian prime minister. I was Because on, he's so dreamy. Because he is very handsome. And he was on Capitol Hill yesterday doing rounds. And I went to the photo, the photo spray as they get their pictures taken with congressional leaders. And the Canadian embassy spokeswoman was there. And she said to me, do you normally get this many reporters showing up at these photo sprays? And I was like, no. <laughs> what was it like to be in the same room with him? 
he is very, I mean, he does have a lot of charisma. You can see he's a very handsome guy. He's very charming. You could even see Nancy Pelosi was just like, you know, <laughs> the very thrilled to meet him. There Who's was a lot taller, of positivity. Obama or Trudeau? I don't know. I didn't see them next to each other, but okay. he's definitely taller than Nancy Pelosi. He is well, a, yeah. <laughs> he is a, he is a, a good height. All right. Uh, Ron, what can you not let go this week? There is a meme on the internet which uh, shows Katie Couric, former network anchor, now on the internet, uh, interviewing Bernie Sanders and asking him, is the purpose of your campaign actually just to move Hillary Clinton a little bit to the left and, you know, make her emphasize certain issues that you care about? And he says simply, no. Do you think ultimately one of your goals may be to to push Hillary Clinton a little more to the left, to push her in a more progressive direction on a number of issues? No. No. My goal is to win this election. Would you be interested in being her vice president? Would she be interested in being my vice president? <laughs> no, Ron, you have to describe what the screen looks like. <laughs> At this point, Bernie Sanders transmogrifies into being a gangster rapper, and uh, it's too wonderful. A moment in hip-hop meets campaign presidential politics not to be forgotten i can't let go i, I just don't understand you don't have to it. watch it you have to watch it the visual is great because oh. i mean like there's that whole thug life meme where like a youtube video was funny and then at the end like a thug life rap icon comes on and the character has a little cigarette in his mouth and it's like uh, i'm a g they it, did that to sanders it's yeah. what bernie has always wanted to do really all right tam what can you not let go this week mine is also bernie sanders related and it is about the suit he was wearing in the debate oh, yeah. earlier this week, I think depending on the settings on your television, it either looked brown or purple or blue or black, kind of like the uh, what color is that dress internet thing from before. Um, so what color do you guys think Bernie's suit was? I, I saw brown. I also saw brown. I got to say I was on, on, the, on the brown squad. I thought Brown, you know, I actually asked my Twitter followers, I put up a poll and I said, what color is Bernie Sanders' suit? Black, brown, or 99%? <laughs> the winner by a landslide was 99%. <laughs> the revolution is a brown suit jacket. I was just saying, like, how many options do male presidential candidates have for sartorial choices going into the debate? I mean, to me, like, it's just one. refreshing. Explain. Yeah, it is just refreshing that for a change, we can obsess on Twitter and elsewhere about what a man was wearing yeah. instead of always just obsessing about like what crazy color chartreuse jacket Hillary Clinton yeah. was wearing. For once, it's the dudes that are getting the attention. I think a brown suit's hard to pull off. Yeah. Absolutely right. And that is part of the Washington gospel that you cannot wear a brown suit. The only person I've seen in Washington wear a brown suit, get away with it, and be praised even for it was Ronald Reagan. <laughs> he did really? it he did it fairly often. People thought it looked good with his hair and oh. his coloring. And I think also it's just a tiny little bit Western. Yes. It was oh, California. Yeah. Thank you, Tam. I was trying to think of exactly what it was, but it was Western. It was California. Okay. What you got, Sam? So this week all over my Facebooks Lots of my friends have been sharing an old campaign ad that the website Quartz dug up. This was a video from the Lyndon B. Johnson campaign for president, basically saying, correct me if I'm wrong on this, don't vote for Goldwater. That's correct. Yeah. So um, this was 1968? No, 1964. And lots of folks are saying it has some crazy, crazy parallels to today's campaign for president and to Donald Trump. I mean, when the head of the Ku Klux Klan 
when all these weird groups come out in favor of the candidate of my party, either they're not Republicans or I'm not. I've thought about just not voting in this election, just staying home, but you can't do that because that's... Is that real? That's yeah. That's a real ad. That guy was an actor, but that ad was real. From you, should, you should check it out. Check it out. It, it, it's it's a perfect period piece, but the parallels are, you know, what you'd call compelling. Fun fact: When Hillary Clinton was 16 years old, she campaigned for Barry Goldwater. She was a Goldwater girl. Just fun fact. Okay, that is all the time we have this week. If you like the show, please rate it on iTunes. That helps other people find the show. Thank you for doing that if you already have. Find us on Twitter, too. Send us your questions there or by email. Our address is nprpolitics at npr.org. Thank you for writing us. We do read everything. And special thanks today to the folks at IdeaStream WCPN in Cleveland for hosting Tamara Keith today. I'm Sam Sanders, campaign reporter. I'm Susan Davis. I cover Congress. I'm Ron Elving, editor correspondent. And I'm Tamara Keith. I'm a White House correspondent covering the campaign. And thank you for listening to the NPR Politics Podcast. 